So I'm willing to bet that um, you recognized the uh, like second to last verse in the gospel reading, John 3.16. Uh, that's kind of the one that everyone knows, right? It's, I, I feel confident in saying it is the most popular, most famous of all uh, verses from the Bible. Um, but there's some context around it. And uh, it's not really meant to kind of exist outside of that context. So we're going to kind of go through this whole interaction that Jesus has with this guy named Nicodemus, and we'll see maybe how it was intended to be read. Uh, And so to do that, we're going to, like I said, just kind of go verse by verse. And so uh, I think that's Phil. I need to get my eyes checked. It's been a few years. but Okay, thank you. I'm pretty sure that's Phil. Um, So anyway, John begins uh, by saying, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And he's already tapping into something that potentially his audience would have recognized. Uh, Nicodemus is known in writings that are outside of the Bible. Uh, He appears in Josephus, a Jewish historian who is writing... I mean, this is slightly controversial, but he was writing around the time that at least some of the Gospels were being written. He also shows up in later uh, Jewish and rabbinic writing. Uh, and we know a couple of things about him. Uh, for starters, uh, Nicodemus is like his Greek name. His Hebrew name is Nakdamon, Nakdamon Ben-Gurion. Uh, he was extraordinarily wealthy. Uh, apparently, like the top three of the wealthiest people in Jerusalem. He was extremely well-respected. He was a faithful follower of God. Um, He had apparently some kind of active prayer life, and at least in one instance, he prayed for something, and God granted it to him immediately, which is kind of rare. Uh, He apparently was also extremely generous with his wealth to the poor. In other words, he's one of those guys that you kind of like low-key sort of resent because they seem to have it all, and they're really good people. So it's like one of those, like, can you please have some flaws? Because otherwise, this is really intimidating. So surely he's got something, you know, some kind of skeleton in his closet. But realistically, from what we can tell, just one of, one of those really, really solid people. Super wealthy, extremely generous, very pious and faithful. Um, so he comes to Jesus by night. Now, a lot is made about that. That if he's coming by night, then he's hiding. He doesn't want people to recognize him. Uh, he, he wants to come in and see what this Jesus guy is all about, but he doesn't want his buddies to be talking about him. I don't think that's the case here for a couple of reasons. Uh, one in, uh, let's see, this is chapter three, in four more chapters, yeah, four, four chapters, math is hard, um, in four chapters, there will be a, a meeting of this ruling council in Jerusalem called the Sanhedrin where they are discussing the problem of this teacher from Galilee. And Nicodemus, in a sense, will stick up for him 
and say, hey, look, the law requires that we actually hear him out. And then they mock him. If Nicodemus was going to um, keep that secret that he was very interested in this Jesus guy, I don't know that he would have said anything. And then even more, after Jesus dies, there are two people that bury him. Now, one was Joseph of Arimathea. John specifically says he did this in secret because he was afraid. Um, Nicodemus is also part of that, but there is no mention of him doing things secretly. As it turns out, there is kind of a low-key um, tradition that if you, as a, a student of Torah, of, of the Bible, um, within a Jewish context, are looking for a rabbi who can kind of take you to the next level, you seek him out by night, ideally at midnight. That seems to be a little more about what's going on here. And we'll see that play out in the way that they interact. So he says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, there are times when uh, people are coming to Jesus and they're trying to trap him into saying something ridiculous so they can bring up charges against him. Every single time that that happens, Jesus makes them regret that. He's, he's, Jesus is too smart. He's too clever. He picks up on it, and he sticks them for it. I don't hear that happening here. I think what, what Nicodemus is saying here is genuine. Uh, he does say we, so the question is, uh, who's this we? And it's not clear. And we're just going to have to leave it at that. But Jesus doesn't attack him back. He doesn't, um, he doesn't question his heart. And in fact, Jesus takes him very seriously. So he says, Jesus answers him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, there's a bit of a pun there in Greek. Um, born, uh, the word for again and from above are the same. So is Jesus saying, born again, born from above? What does he mean by that? There's, it's a little cryptic. And in especially a first century or ancient Jewish culture, um, if a teacher asks you a question, the best way to respond is with another question that takes the conversation deeper. Uh, Jesus does this lots of times, and it's maddening because sometimes in the modern sense, we just want to say, just answer the question. Um, but that's not how they work. And so you can see Nicodemus doing this. Uh, we tend to think of it as Nicodemus missing the point. But let's see how this plays out. Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So first off, Ouch. Um, or at least, how do you even start that conversation? But more seriously, uh, because I have a hard time taking things seriously. No. Think about, uh, actually, go back to the previous one, sorry. Um, 
we think about the inflection that we hear when we read this. We have kind of, it's, it's kind of baked into how we've read, read this passage for a long time, but we tend to think of Nicodemus as saying, how can a man be born when he's old? Like, I, I'm a terrible actor, so I apologize. But we assume Nicodemus is asking this from a point of just not getting it, totally whiffing it. But what if Nicodemus is asking this question to dig to, to, to get Jesus to reveal the deeper teaching, the deeper meaning. In other words, what if Nicodemus is saying it's something like, yeah, but, I mean, what am I supposed to do? Ask my mom to give birth to me again? And that, that's a very clever question because it, it gets Jesus to respond more deeply. And that's exactly what Jesus does. So then Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, we, there's a flag on the play uh, there, the born of water and the Spirit, just like 30 seconds of something very, very nerdy. Um, in Greek, that phrase of water and the Spirit um, is special. Because of the way it uses like definite articles, blah, blah, blah. We're not going to go that deep. Um, it's called a hendiatus. And it's a way of taking two concepts and equating them. John, it, you see this in John um, several times. It's not 100% unique to John, but he likes to do this. So um, uh, maybe a better way to, to draw that out is to say, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of, born of water, which is the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God, which raises a question. Uh, this, and this is a, as Lutheran Christians are like, we are trained to answer this question. What does it mean, or what are we referring to when we say being born of water, which is the Spirit by which you enter the kingdom of God? What is that? Baptism, yes, just like first service, immediately knew. Great. I'd like to take credit for that, but I've only been here a year, so it wasn't for me. So, in other words, Jesus' response to Nicodemus' question that we have kind of long assumed was kind of a dumb question uh, is to actually take him deeper, which it means maybe it's not a dumb question. So, then he continues, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. This, he, I don't think he means like flesh, bad, spirit, good, but maybe that God by his spirit is doing something different here. So he says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Or maybe to say another way, everyone who is born of the water, which is the Spirit. Notice how he, he uses that almost interchangeably. Now, what Jesus seems to be hinting at is that by the Spirit, some kind of unpredictable is happening and people are missing it that God is acting by his spirit and it has something to do with this kingdom of God like this rule and reign and presence of God 
Um, but then Nicodemus says, how can these things be? Jesus answered, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Um, there is a, there, there's a deep tragic irony within the story of Jesus that God's people, like especially the leadership, miss it. Just because Nicodemus doesn't understand in that moment doesn't mean that he's not smart or he's bad or whatever. I think, I think when he says, how can these things be, it's a, it's, a, it's a question asked in good faith. He doesn't understand it yet, and that's okay. But he, Nicodemus is also supposed to uh, be a teacher of Israel. He has that reputation. He's on the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling council, and one of the, the, the points made by the Gospels is that those in charge miss it. They miss the Messiah. They, they do not understand what God is doing, even though he comes and he performs these miracles and gives these signs. So we see that playing out here. Uh, let's see here. And then he says, Truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Now, that you there at the end, but you do not receive our testimony, is plural. So, better translation would be y'all. Um, because English doesn't have a good way to say that, and Texas actually gets that part right. So, whatever. Um, but you all, y'all do not receive our testimony. In other words, Jesus has been teaching, and it's the leadership that's missing it. The average person starts to pick up what, he, what Jesus is putting down, and they become what defines this movement. If I have told you, you all, earthly things, and you do not believe, all of those yous are plural, by the way, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Um, and then Jesus gets even more confusing. And as Moses lifted up the, servant in the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever in him may have eternal life. Now, uh, from a modern reading, reader perspective, uh, it's like, did we change topics? What is going on here? Um, so what Jesus is doing here, he, it, it's a very sophisticated form of ancient Jewish reading. Um, he's referring to uh, this episode in Israel's deep past. After Moses, uh, the, the first of the great prophets, leads Israel out of slavery in Egypt to Mount Sinai, God come, his presence comes down to the top of Mount Sinai and, Sinai, and he gives Moses Torah, God's law or teaching. While he's doing that, his brother, who's supposed to be the high priest, uh, gets accosted by these other Israelites who are going, ah, he's brought us out to, to the wilderness to die, and now he's up there and he's in God's presence, so that means he's probably dead or something like that. And they push Aaron to make a god that they can worship. And he does. And so he gathers all like the golden stuff and he, and he makes this calf, the golden calf. 
And he has the audacity to say, look, here is the God that rescued you from slavery in Egypt. That's like the first rule of the, of the Big Ten, like don't do that. And as you can imagine, God, not thrilled. Moses, not thrilled. And so God sends these snakes, venomous snakes, to come and bite the people who worship, um, worship this golden calf. And they all get envenomated or whatever that word is. I think it's envenomated. And, and uh, in response, God tells Moses to, take, uh, to craft a serpent and put it on a pole, ostensibly made of wood, and march it around the people. And, and if you're bit and you're dying from the venom, you look at that and the venom goes away and you live really strange story, and coming from the Bible, that's saying something. Now, what on earth does Jesus mean as he's telling this to this Nicodemus who has come and wants to hear some of the deeper teachings from God? Jesus is actually telling Nicodemus what he's going to do. You don't do that unless you have some kind of respect and trust in the person you are talking to. So you can imagine, because it's hard to tell like what Nicodemus or whoever else is, is around hearing this. It's hard to tell how much they get at that time, but I would be willing to bet that when Jesus is lifted up from the earth, on this cross, while the life is draining out of him and he is in the death throes, this moment of, he's the serpent now. Whoa. And if, if the serpent, you know, 1,500 years ago or whatever, when Moses was around and he's he was holding, and, and you had to look at this serpent that was raised up to be cleansed from this venom. Then what Jesus is doing is he's, he's solving the problem of death. Because if you look up at the serpent, which is a, uh, an example of the thing that bit you and is threatening your life, so it's like the thing that is the problem is raised up, well, the thing that is raised up or happening as Jesus is raised up is he's being executed, which means he's come to actually solve the problem of death for humanity. And he tells that to Nicodemus and explains it. That contrary to what... Um, the, the, the ruling council or the, the sharpest minds in Israel or in Judea at the time might say, Messiah has come and, and rather than establishing the boundaries of ancient Israel, kicking out the Romans or, or uh, gathering you know, everybody who's been spread out the, uh, across the Mediterranean, the Messiah is here to cleanse the people from sin, death, and destruction. And we didn't see it coming. And yet for those who see Jesus for who he really is, he brings life. 
And it is in that context that Jesus then explains um, what we call John 3.16. Now, there's a translation issue. We, think, we hear the word so, and we think of that as like an amount. That's not what that so means in Greek. It's hutos. Um, this would be maybe a better way to say it. For God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then next slide. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And he reveals this to this man named Nicodemus, that this is how God is acting. This is how God loves the world. That in, and it is in this way he is giving his son to die so that the world will not be condemned uh, but saved through him. Or rather, he didn't, so that not that he will condemn the world, but rather through him he will save it. I think two things we can pull from this, and I will end here. The first is that God loved the world by sending his son for you and me. Those of us who have this, this tendency, which is all of us, this, this inner like brokenness, what the Bible calls sin, uh, to destroy ourselves and those around us to constantly be in this state of alienation or separation from God. This is how God fixed the problem. He sent his son to die in your place. The second thing is that God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but rather to save it. He now calls his church, you and me, out into the world to do the same. It is not our job to condemn the world. It is our job to bring Jesus for their salvation. Amen.